Welcome to Season 2 of the Week Pastor Podcast, where we view Christianity through the lens of vulnerability. Welcome to the Week Pastor Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, several months ago, I had the privilege of hanging out with my, one of my closest friends, Dr. Reverend Alex G. And uh, I try to visit him a couple times a year, and he visits me out here in New Jersey, New York, a couple times a year. We just kind of do life together. And uh, I was I was fortunate enough to interview him on his podcast, and uh, it, his podcast is called Black Like Me. And I uh, highly encourage you guys to check it out if you have never checked it out. But I did interview him on leadership, but also on uh, just various different topics. And on this Juneteenth, I, we thought it would be really great uh, for us to air this interview. And I hope that you enjoy it. If you have any thoughts, any questions, please, please feel free uh, to email us. You can email me at peter at weekpastor.org, or you can just comment on the social media post. But I do hope that you will enjoy this interview. Hey, 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 good people. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Black Like Me with Dr. Alex G. Now, did not tell you all that season eight was going to be fire. Did I not tell you? And it is. I can't believe how much fun I'm having recording this this particular season because I get to sit down with some of my favorite people who ask me real thought provoking questions about my leadership, my experiences, my regrets and how I really have approached leadership. And so I'm excited about that. So today's guest is no exception. Um, Peter on is my my guest host today. Peter is one of my favorite people in the world, one of my best friends on the planet. We met years ago. Um, he's a fellow pastor, but we met years ago at a small gathering pastors from all across the world. Actually, I mean, there are people there from South America, the U.S. I think I was one of two black people there. The rest of folks are Asian American. We jumped out of a plane together. Right. I let I let folks talk me out of jumping out of a plane. <laughs> it changed my life, changed my world. And Peter and I connected because um, we jumped first and second out of that plane. I didn't try to jump first because I was too afraid. Um, come on, Peter. You don't. I, I kind of pushed you to go first. Yeah. I was a little nervous. So I got out. I got in the plane last because a brother didn't want to jump out of plane, <laughs> but a brother didn't want to not jump because I was representing brothers. That's right. But I was still having brother feelings, and that's fear of falling and dying. So anyway, I, I was the last one in the plane and I sat down and I thought, well, shit, that means I'm the first one out. And I was. Yes, and so, um, it's no, no, was I the first, I was the first you one up. You were one, I was two. That's yeah. right. That's right, man. I kind of blanked some of that out. So anyway, we became friends after that connected. I was in New York, um, cause he lives in New Jersey. I was in New York for a speaking engagement not really knowing my Northeast geography, reached out to him, not understanding how far Leonia, New Jersey was from Chelsea in Manhattan. But he drove over, picked me up, took me to a movie out to eat, and then took me to the airport. And we just have been best friends since then. But he's my guest today. I just want to say that he is, um, now in the church world, it's called um, a church planter. But in, in broader sense, he's really an innovator. He had an idea to create this um, Asian-led, multi-ethnic community of faith in Jersey, in, in, um, in, in Bergen County. And he wanted to be able to reach doctors and, and folks who are struggling economically. And he's just built this great community. And this place is really a home away from home for me. Um, he's completing his doctorate uh, degree. He just finished his dissertation. He'll be defending it soon. Um, but he's traveled the world. It's because of him that I actually set foot on the motherland. He acquired a grant and invited me to go with him to South Africa, where I started finding my my soul in ways I never intended. So anyway, I'm talking way 
too, too much. But I just want you to know that this is a brother from another mother, a true soul brother. You know, we spent time on, you know, four or five continents together trying to do good, trying to help people grow stronger, grow in their faith. And also thinking about how we influence our communities and neighborhoods as well. And so um, I want you just to help me to welcome my very special guest, Peter Ahn. Peter, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. This is awesome to do this face-to-face in a studio. So thank you for having me. And I'm really excited to be here. And I'm going to grill you today. I'm ready to grill you. Oh, dang. Man, it feels like uh, this is your life kind of stuff. (laughs) So listen, I'm passing the mic over. The only thing I'm going to ask you as we're starting is, to maybe kick things off, yeah, um, and and maybe just telling a story that that um, that maybe sets up our friendship and yeah. our connection that might help people to understand how we how we interact, and then um, I'm at your disposal, okay, young man. All right, all right. Well, for me, like well, Alex shared that story, but when we first met at this conference, but I was actually very intimidated by you. And I, I didn't know if I should go because up and, I was black, <laughs> not because you were black, but okay, just because you ask. had sort of a pastoral resume. I just graduated seminary. I was kind of getting to that place of wanting to plant a church. Here you are, you know, uh, itinerant speaker speaking at Urbana, different things like that, doing great things here in Madison. And so I was just naturally intimidated by you. But once we jumped out of that plane, <laughs> everything changed. Like something happens when you know you're gonna, you might die, and you risk your life doing something together. We just became brothers. And you, I'm just, you, you bond with people when you pee on yourselves. Oh my goodness! In, in the air, that's that about was, that just ties you together. That was crazy. You were first. I remember, like, I was like, oh, I can't go first. And you went. You jumped out of that plane first. <laughs> <laughs> and I just followed behind you. And then ever since then, I was like, all right, that's it. We, we got to be brothers. Now, let's just be honest. I was the only brother in the plane. Y'all pushed me out. Tell me <laughs> I jumped. You actually <laughs> held the top of the plane before the guy went out and he finally because, pushed you because out. Because I was scared. People are like, oh, you look scared. Like, you think we were like two miles up in the air. And so, no. So, man, I, I really... Well, so Appreciate that. yeah, and so I think like we've traveled the world together. You've kind of seen my life. So we've seen it in a public place. I've seen yours on a public scale, and then also like in a private place sure, as well. Sure. We've been able to kind of speak into each, other, into each other's life. And so what I want the audience to know is that you know you've been a, a person that has made a tremendous impact in my life. And one of the one of the most popular stories that I like to share about you is that one day you kind of said to me, you looked at me, you said, you know what? We need you to get a whole new wardrobe <laughs> i'm like what you're like you're making me every, sound shallow everything you wear is black and gray <laughs> like you're like you need some lively color and you're like we're gonna go to nordstrom's rack we're gonna go to the mall and i'm gonna do some shopping for you all right i'm gonna pick out some clothes and i was just like man i don't know i'm not sure if i want you to do that but okay we'll go let's let's check it out and so we go and this is one of the cool things about you is that we can just kind of do life and then somehow you really speak like courageously but also really helped me to see things about myself that I never saw before and one of the things you did was that we went there and like you got this shirt this button shirt and it was like literally fluorescent orange (laughs) and you're like Peter this will look so good on you and I'm like I was like Alex I can't wear that because if I wear that it's gonna draw way too much attention on me no 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 no. I cannot wear a shirt like that and you just kind of put it back on the rack and then you look around you looked at the tie section and then you grab the tie and you're like Peter this will look really good on you and again it had like these flamboyant neon colors <laughs> and I just said no 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 I was like Alex if I wear that to church it's gonna draw way too much attention to me 
And you had this look on your face, and it was like just like a like a look of disgust, right? <laughs> and then you just go over, and I think you were like, "Well, he's gonna like these. Let's get him some cufflinks." And then you went, you found a pair of cufflinks. You're like Peter, these cufflinks would be really nice. You can at least get a pair of cufflinks. And I said, "You know what, Alex? I don't know if I wear that. Like if I wear it to a church function or something like that, I was like, it's gonna draw too much attention." And then you just dropped, you just dropped those cufflinks on 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 the shelf, and you just said, "Listen." Let me just ask you something. I know when you get angry, you call me boy. <laughs> you said, boy, do you think God made you six feet, four inches tall so you can just blend in? And Korean. Six, yeah. four, and, and Korean. Korean. And you, so that you can just blend in with everyone so that you can't be seen? And then you said this to me, and this is what I'll never forget. You said, you better stand up tall, put your head up high, and be proud that God made you six feet, four inches tall. Peter, God created you this way so that you can stand out. So stop trying to hide and blend in. I mean, it was like one of those, oh my gosh, Aww. moments. Uh, so I guess what I wanted to ask you was, what was going through your mind when you were hearing me say, I'm going gonna, it's, it's gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to stick out too much. It's going to draw way too much attention to me. Like what was going through your psyche as, as I was turning you down on your wardrobe selection <laughs> for me? Like what were you thinking? Because then you spoke so boldly into my life. But I think those are some of those moments that you and I have had that's really impacted me like profoundly. But I would love to know what was going through your mind when I was saying that. Man, uh, first of all, I must have been having a rough day. So, Peter, I want to apologize right now in front of all my listeners Boy. and yours. No, I think what was going on, Peter, is... <clears throat> So Peter's right. When I met him, he was an intern. But what stands out is, you know, people listen and act like they don't see ethnicity. When you saw mm -hmm. me, you knew I was black and there's yeah. only one other black person in this yeah. in, in that room. I saw you. You were not the only Korean American person, but you were the tallest Korean American person in that room. So we saw each other's mm -hmm. ethnic features and 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 physical uniquenesses. And so for people to pretend like they don't see that, um, and so I live in Madison, and so the diversity of my friendships. You know, have been somewhat limited because yeah. you know so I've been looking to, to expand and know people from other cultures mm. and and so when I was invited into this circle it was my first time being in a circle that was predominantly Asian American yeah. that I was outnumbered I'm used to being outnumbered by white people but yeah. not Asian Americans yeah. and specifically Korean Americans so the first thing I noticed about you and liked about you was your cultural uniqueness and your height and who you were that, mm. that you know that that you just you that you were unique so for you to downplay what is obvious about you, what people notice first. Now, again, I, you know, I got to appreciate your, your, your mind mm -hmm. and your heart and your desire to travel the world and your love for Africa and African people. I got to know those things. And so I, what I felt when I, was, when I was having that conversation is who, who taught you to be ashamed of yeah. who you are? Yeah. Who taught you to not appreciate that? Who taught you to not lean in to that? Yeah. Because there are important things and authenticity is so it's so key. And so it, 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 it hurt my heart that you had experienced those things, but then it pissed me off that you were listening to them. Yeah. So, so I, I want people to know I'm not a total clothes horse. However, I was raised by a single mom. So I, I know how to accessorize. All right. Brother knows how to access. I know how to put, I know how to put my you're, shoes you're, and my socks and my right. belt together. Sure. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, so when I saw you wearing like sleeves halfway up, you know, your wrists. I was like, come on down, brother. Come on now. I wear 30, I wear 35, 36. That's kind of long. You got to at least be, I don't know, 42, 43. And so you can't wear my shirts. And so you were wearing stuff off the rack. So, I mean, you're 6'4". I'm 5'8". Yeah. So you can't be having, like, shirts looking like tube tops coming over your navel 
<laughs> and then long sleeve shirts coming down to your wrist. I was like, no, we're not finna do not if I'm gonna hang out with you. Now you That's can right. do that. <laughs> we're That's not. Right. That's right. We're not. And so I don't know if you style. I, come on, I don't know if you remember this part of I said, now Peter, listen. <laughs> if you ashamed of being tall and Korean. <laughs> you need to let me know because <laughs> part because <laughs> that's what I like about you. <laughs> yes. So if you don't want to be that guy, <laughs> I gotta find another that's buddy. Right. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I know that sounds totally selfish, but I was trying to get in his head. People, I was trying to get in his that's head. That's right. So that's my whole right. my whole thing was, man, is that I wanted you to begin to look at yourself through your own perspective, yeah. um, and and to be proud because um, because Asian American people, Korean American people. Not many of which, not mm. many of whom are tall, mm. look at you with admiration. Mm. And so the folks who might look at you and think like, whoa, what's going on, are probably not Korean people. Yeah. It may be a lot of other people. It might be some black people. So yeah. I'm not acting like it's just white people. Yeah. But in your community, I feel like there probably was a sense of pride like, yeah. wow, look at him about how big he is, how tall he is, and you know how he looks and how he dresses. So anyway, that's a long answer. But my whole point was, I just didn't want you to carry any shame around who you were because there was nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, and it was really a, like one of those powerful moments in my life. And I, but you know, I gotta thank you for that because I think in a lot of relationships that people have, uh, sometimes they don't have perhaps the courage to share something like that because they're worried about maybe offending, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> you know, and things like that. But for you, like one of the things I really appreciate about our relationship is that whenever you give me feedback like that, I take that as like a term of endearment. Like as like this is a big brother that's really trying to be honest and truthful and trying to speak and have a heart to heart with me. And that's why it was like one of those powerful moments. And I was like, yeah, I gotta start dressing in different colors and, and I gotta start <laughs> sticking out because God created me to stick out. So I gotta stick out a little bit. So I really appreciated that about you. But that's courage though, because I think a lot of, there's a lot of people that wouldn't, they just would say, you know what, okay, whatever. And they just wouldn't like wanna sort of get somebody upset or maybe speak truth. And I find that for you, um, you're not like that. You like to really share truth and love <laughs> and really be honest with people. And I think that's really admirable. And that's one of the things I love about you is that yeah, you always keep it you, real uh, and sometimes even funny as you keep it real. Can I throw one thing yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. When, when I do go to, to Jersey, Peter's good at taking me over to um, to Harlem. Yeah, that's right. So one of my, I have his favorite oh, yeah, um, I know. soul food restaurant that's run and staffed by black people, but it's owned by Korean people. So we're both <laughs> at home there. So, so the Koreans are managing it. <laughs> but, 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 but the black folks are, uh, are putting the food and stuff out. But some of the Koreans are cooking the, the soul food. They got, yeah, you know, they're, yeah, they're cooking yeah, some of the greens yeah. and stuff too. Um, so, but we hang out in Harlem, go shopping yeah. and stuff because I love Harlem because of the preponderance of black. Mm. So it's just really, really, it's cool that we're, that we're in that kind of um, space. But I took you to one of the places where I like to shop on 125th Street. I know. Yeah. Guy looked at you and said, hey, I got a jacket that'll fit you. Now, I don't think they call it this now, but back in the day it was called like shark skin, the way it looked. And yeah. he went and got it. And you're like, no, 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 I can't buy off the That's rack. Right, I'm talking. That. He said, yeah. just trust me. He put it on you. It fit yeah. perfectly. Yeah. Here, go try these pants on. <laughs> then when he did it, you know, it's like, you know, like, like black and Latino men are shopping. The black and, you know, yeah, you know Puerto yeah, Rican yeah. men. But then when you came out, people were like, dang, that suit looks like. Then people start, you know, the brothers start looking at you nodding like, oh, that's nice. That's <laughs> nice. I think you end up wearing it to church. Like, that's still my profile pic when you call. Yeah. And that's the picture that comes up. But you're in this black men's store. That's they right. They threw a suit on you, and you ended up, you ended up and buying, buying it. it. And yeah. you end up buying it. But you got this affirmation from these black um you know, uh, these guys who make a living, that's right. you know, sizing up people, putting clothes on them. But there was all this affirmation like, mm. man, you like this mannequin, like take advantage of it. You know, you're tall, you're slim, you can wear stuff. 
So I just I remember that the the discussion that we started in Nordstrom Rack That's right. <laughs> in Jersey played out That's in right. Harlem when you right. got when you got a That's real right. black man suit That's right. from a black salesman <laughs> and it looked good on you. It was a nice shiny gray suit, man. <laughs> A nice shiny suit, man. It looked good. It looked good. You wore it. You and I got the bow too. ties and everything. Yes, you did. Come on now. Come on here. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, I got a couple questions for you that yes, I'd love, I love to uh, ask you because I think uh, some of these are just really important. You and I have engaged in some of these conversations before. But one of the things I realized over the years, at least as, as being a leader, is that leaders are made or literally broken through crisis. And uh, I know that you've been a, a leader, a pastor, a leader of the city for decades and mm. i know that you've gone through your crisis moments and and i just kind of want to maybe if you can share with the audience what are some things particularly let's just take for example covid this pandemic happened and it literally shut everything down it was a crisis what what were some things that you feel like some takeaways that you might have been able to kind of as you reflect upon it now um that can literally translate into like key steps that perhaps another leader who's listening today, as they might be in a crisis right now, or maybe one day they will, they would remember what you've said and said, you know what, these are some salient points or things that I did during this crisis that was where I was able to lead my organization, uh, a group of people out of it and do it well. And so I'd love to kind of pick your brain about that and sort of get your thoughts about how you were able to lead through a crisis situation and uh, how you were able to do it well. Man, that's a, that's a great question. And this is why we're doing Pass the Mic, because it gives me a chance to reflect. Mm. Because I don't get these answers or the questions you're going to ask way in advance. I have to think about them that's right. know, off, the, off the cuff. You know, when for, for me, when crisis happens, like with the pandemic, it's a chance to live in the ambiguous. Mm. And that's so huge. and so there's three things that you get to do in a time of crisis. You get to rethink new roads, mm. new roles and mm. new rules. Um, roads are different ways you travel. Um, roles are how you will morph into something else. And rules talk about how you go about doing it. That maybe yeah. what ha- what has been a rule in the past doesn't necessarily apply yeah. moving forward. So roads, um, roles and rules. So when the pandemic happened. I freaked out. I actually thought sure. that I was going to lose my nonprofit and I wasn't sure, Nehemiah, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure if the church was going to go under. And I just assumed that the plans for the Center for Black Excellence and Culture were smashed because, wow. you know, they were shutting down March yeah. Madness. You know, yeah. they were playing in a bubble down at the, you know, the NBA playoffs. Mm-hmm. Wall Street was shut down. I was watching, you know, so I, I couldn't imagine our world coming back yeah. without losing our donors to the nonprofit mm-hmm. world. Um, I was actually on a call with a mutual friend of ours, Dave, and he pulled together like 60 influencers. Some were professional athletes, people who worked for Google, people who worked in yeah. the media, people who used to work for, um, uh, what's that store called, Lululemon? Lulu? Yeah, Lululemon. Lululemon, yeah. I call it Melon, yeah. like someone who used to be the COO of that company, somebody mm-hmm. who used to work for Tesla. Wow. Um, and we talked, and basically what they were saying was, we've got to pivot, we've got to pivot. The world's gonna be crazy for 18 months, but you have to think now where you wanna be. So what mm-hmm. they were saying was rethink your role, rethink the rules, yeah. Um, and rethink the road that you want to take. Yeah, that was so mind-boggling for me. So, so for me as a leader, I can't just look at what we've always done. Mm. So I went into this call because I just wanted to commiserate with others who are running nonprofits around yeah. the world. But what I heard is that this is not the end of the world. Um, some good is going to come out of this. Let's ride out the storm, but begin thinking who you want to be, how you want to get there, and and um, and and. And what 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 your role would look like? Mm. 
I came back to my staff and said, we're going to pivot, my Nehemiah staff said, yeah. we're going to pivot. We're going to stop begging for um, emergency food. We're not going to ask our funders for that because at this time we didn't know if the pandemic was going to last for three months or six right. months. I said, but it's going to run out. Hmm. We're going to stop and go back to normal. And if we start chasing money for um, for helping people with food and, 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 and um, toiletries, when it lifts, we're going to be known for that and not for the work that we already are known for. That's hmm. reentry, housing, helping people work through um, the throngs of racial insensitivity and systemic racism. Let's stick to our core business. Let's tell people what we've been doing mm. because our organization, Nehemiah, really focused on issues playing in the black community pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, in the midst of the pandemic, and we will still be doing this post-pandemic. Yeah. So if we shift our mission, like all we're doing is trying to meet emergency needs, we're going to be known for that. And so mm. we made that shift. We started telling people what we did. Folks started signing up for history class. People started volunteering. We got brand new donors that we'd never had before. And so I just think part of what I had to do was, and this is where my faith comes in too. And faith yeah. is not just um, having the confidence to do something, but also having the confidence to wait, yeah. to really be directed inwardly. I don't yeah. just try to read a manual or a magazine and say, this is the new direction. Um, so although my head was saying we're doomed, my heart was saying, run with that pivot. You don't know the I full strength it. of it. Just take it a day at a time. Yeah. Eli, who's here in the studios as, as my producer, uh, he's he's the director of our of our communication mm -hmm. team. I said, Eli, I want to note out, I want to letter out every week or every other week. This is what we're doing. Here's how we're training people. This is the work of Nehemiah. So we totally re-educated um, our supporters. Yeah, um, we got new people following us, yep. and it gave brand new life. And we had the most successful financial season of Nehemiah's 30-year history during the three years of COVID wow. because we looked at new roads, new roles, and new rules. And the team believed me because I said it with passion yeah. and confidence. They shifted and said, mm -hmm. all right, we got you. Let's do this. And we saw the benefits of it. So I think crisis actually um, really gets me going because, mm. because I like newness. Yeah. It either happens by leaving what you have currently built yeah. to innovate something brand new. Yeah or to redefine yourself or yeah. your organization within its current confines. Mm. And so because I knew leaving Nehemiah wasn't an option, I didn't want to do right. that. It gave me a chance to redefine Nehemiah and its purpose inside its own auspices, its own, its own umbrella. And that redefinition changed us in such a relevant way wow. that we became known in, in the community as the place you go to understand what's happening to black people mm. in America. And so I said to Eli, I need I need um, handbooks on how to watch movies and mm. discuss them. We need to make recommendations of books. Um, we just start naming all of these resources. So if you go to Nehemiah.org, there'll be a link, you know, in the in the in the notes section here. We have all of these resources and we became like the place you go wow. to hear about the black community from the black community and what white people need to understand or non-black people need to understand about the black issue wow. because what was happening in the streets to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, um, Ahmaud Arbery was not about single moms, mm. as, which, which is what some, yeah. some people would have you think. Yeah. If we just didn't have these issues, we wouldn't have these issues. I know a lot of people with single moms and none of them 
causing to be shot down yeah. in the streets. Yeah. It had to be misguided people with rifles yeah. chasing down black yeah. people, breaking into black people's homes, yeah. shooting them in their beds, kneeling on the necks of black people, shooting black people with their hands up. None of that had to do with single mothers mm-hmm. because single mothers don't prepare their children for death. Yes, right. Sorry, I got a soapbox with no, that No, this one. is great. Those are the things that really wow. help me to do that. So I, I don't like the crisis that goes on, yeah. but it gets those innovative juices of mind right. going to That's rethink right. ourselves and our reality. Yeah, it's just so powerful because, like you just said, so many times crisis is, is an opportunity for innovation. And that's right. why I've seen you over the years that you really thrive in crisis. And, you know, these guys at Harvard, uh, their name is Linsky and Heifetz. They wrote a book called Leadership on the Line. And what you just said at the beginning when I asked you that question, you said – you got to embrace ambiguity. And that is so key, you know, because what they write in their book is simply this. They say that uh, uh, the reason why leaders fail in crisis is because they don't embrace the ambiguity and they always try to predict the outcome. Mm. And that's when they fall, because in a crisis, you can never predict the outcome. And, And they call that a technical approach to leadership. Right. And they say that you have to actually embrace an adaptive leadership form An adaptive leadership form is simply leading in ambiguity and not worrying about exactly the outcome. And you just lead in that ambiguity to the best of your ability. And you just kind of shared it so beautifully. And I just think that's remarkable. I actually didn't know that in those three years was the was the most fruitful three years in terms of giving and donations oh and stuff gosh. like that. That's amazing. What a story. Our staff story. grew our st- as people were were downsizing. Our staff was was growing, and when we reported to our board, like when Harry was giving me updates, my executive vice yeah. president, I <laughs> I didn't believe him. I was like, "Can you show me a bank statement?" <laughs> because I just thought, okay, what? he's new in this role. Maybe <laughs> maybe maybe he forgot a yeah. comma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? he, he saw an extra zero. Right. Like he just yeah. <laughs> Harry, is that black or is that red lettering? Is there a minus sign here? Because it's important if that sign is a minus or not. <laughs> I know I'm I'm saying this guy. I know Harry's gonna listen to this and yeah. laugh. But but because people love um, innovation. Now, during mundane times, you don't want an innovator leader at your helm. That's right. Because sometimes, as I have found, because we always want to change things. Mm -hmm. But in crisis, you can't have the technicians who understand um, technical solutions because because they freak out. It's those of us who understand, okay, the world's moving, the stars are moving, Wall Street is moving, donors are moving, organizations are moving, the pandemic is moving. Media is moving yeah. while all those things are swirling. Yeah. An innovator can stand in the midst of that, yeah. hold all of it in yeah. tension and say, here's the direction we need to go. That's right. And that's that's, that's right. That's what happened. That's right. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're just going to go this direction and see what happens. But this is the way to go. It's kind of like, let's throw away the employee manuals. Let's throw away all like the different policies and let's kind of start from ground zero again. And, know, the, and, the, and the kids that my staff follow me because yeah, because beautiful. because a visionary can have thoughts all day, that's you can right. dream all day. That's right. But unless people believe yep. that you have a track record of doing that, and something happens very similar at church. Mm-hmm. Um, Jakeisha, um, you know, who's you know part of my podcast team, she's one of our creatives. I said I need I need an app right away mm. um, because black churches were still holding services because many of them did not have a means for uh, congregating yeah, or yeah. collecting. F- Resource, which yeah. you need for church. I yeah. don't. I understand. Yeah. I run a church. You need resources. Yeah. yeah, to do that, you showed us your app. I sent it to Jakeisha. She put an app together, yeah. and actually, I think we're doing it through Splash Splash something. Okay, she was training them on mm. new things that we wanted it to do. So we duplicated your church's mm. application. We found a way to hire a person um, who didn't belong to our church, didn't yeah. believe like our church, to put the videos yeah. together. But the but the innovation to do that right. 
caused right. the church to grow for us to have yeah. more adherence. And we actually grew in population mm. during the three years of COVID mm. than we did the five years mm. leading up to COVID. Mm. So like, as, as I'm hearing you talk, I have a couple of other questions that, sure. uh, that I just would love to ask you. So you just said, my staff follow me. There are leaders out there where their staff don't follow them. A lot of times they don't trust them and different things like that. Why do you think your staff is willing to follow you? Like, what, what is it? Because maybe you can help a leader out who might be struggling with that, that whenever they have an innovative idea, whenever there's a crisis and they're trying to, but sometimes their people, their staff, are not willing to follow them. What, what have you done over the years that you have been able to lead in such a way where your staff trusts you and they say, we will follow your lead? What do you, what, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but what, what do you think? How could you help somebody who might be struggling with that? Great question, Peter. Yeah. Um, I mean, I probably should clarify. Your, your, your employees, your team members, your colleagues don't follow you in crisis, yeah. into a crisis. They follow you when there's not a crisis. Mm. And, oh, that's good. and so that when a crisis comes and you say, this is how we run yeah. into the burning building, we run yeah. out, they trust you because of what you do mm. pre-crisis. There you go. I so you that. can't develop yeah. that level of um, adherence mm. Mm. and partnership but you, but if you've helped people dream, yeah, and you've created space where their dreams can come mm-hmm. to pass, mm-hmm. where the vision makes room for their vision yeah. to do things that they want to do, yep. and you create things together, in those moments they follow. But it wasn't like they've never followed before. Yeah, they trusted not just that yeah. I could have vision and follow mm-hmm. through it. They trusted that I cared for the community, that mm-hmm. I cared for them, and that I wanted us all mm-hmm. um, to succeed. They knew that we. I wasn't forcing them to come into yeah. the office. Um, that I wanted them to to work, you know, safely. And they knew that I trusted that they will still give us enough work. Yeah. I think Eli probably can help me. I don't think we're expecting people to do forty hours back in those days. Yeah. But I think we're asking for I don't know, good fifteen to twenty yeah. or something. So they knew we really mm-hmm. understood. They were home with their children. Mm-hmm. They were afraid. We weren't sure if we were mm-hmm. going to make it through this. But it's what you do pre-crisis mm-hmm. that helps you to do what you need to do mid-crisis. Absolutely. So I would say to the leaders, how are you treating people? How are you communicating yeah. with people? Yep. How are you empowering people yep. pre-crisis? Yeah. Because if you do it right, folks will stand with you right. in the midst of crisis. Yeah. And and I was never prouder to be Nehemiah's CEO and mm. founder than I was with my staff who showed up every yeah. day virtually mm. to, to um, serve this city. You know, there's something real special that happens when you see talent and abilities in people. And I listened to the the first one, uh, the new season with ha- with Harry. Right. And you saw potential in him that he didn't even see in himself. And you empowered him to do something. And he's like, you're number two now. And it's just amazing that I think that's a real key thing to leadership that I think leaders need to hear today. They need to realize that when you want to empower people, when you see giftings and you elevate them and you give them the platform to excel and then they're excelling, they're willing to follow you wherever you want to go, wherever, right. wherever you want to go, particularly in a crisis. And I've always seen that you've never felt threatened by any of these people. Um, you always want to empower. You want us. You want them to ascend and take to take the right, right. take the mantle and, and have the credibility and and receive. You know, and even like you know, take some of the accolades and stuff like that. Brings joy to you, and that's a very special kind of leader. And I know people have to do a lot of deep work to get there. But I think that's one of the things why people are willing to follow you, especially during a crisis, because you treat them well, you see them, and you empower them, which is really cool. I appreciate yeah. that, Peter. So one of the other questions that I have is this, and I think sometimes if people see you, if they see you in this community they just see like you have it kind of all together but I believe every leader struggles with doubt 
And when you started this uh, Center for Black Excellence, you had a lot of money you had to raise. Yes. I mean, I'm sure you had doubt. So could you share with us, like, how do you deal with your doubt? Because all leaders go through a lot of doubt. And sometimes the doubt gets so big where it kind of paralyzes them. But how have you been over the years been able to overcome your doubts so that you can continue to do the things that you feel like you want to do? And like what you're doing here with the Center for Black Excellence, the kind of money you have been raising that you have raised. I have never met another human like person that I have a relationship that is raised. And I know a lot of pretty well-known people who have a deep amount of resources and connections, but I've never met anyone who's been able to raise the kind of money that you have been able to raise. But I'm sure you had some doubts even before you started. How did you wrestle with that and how did you overcome it? Dad, you're asking all these great questions, Peter. Um, You know, again, I I feel like, um, I won't say an advantage, but I will certainly say a resource that I have as a leader is that I, be, I believe in divine intervention. I believe mm. in a purpose and a sense of calling, mm. and I believe in, in um, that direction outside mm. ourselves. And so I would say for 40 years, I believe that I, I had this deep impulse in my heart that um, I was supposed to do something key on a hill mm. in Madison. Mm. Now, the center is going to be on the largest hill in South Madison. It's where our church has been for the yeah. last 35 years. But I've known that since I was 16. So when the opportunity presents itself, I take a dream that I put on the shelf and think, okay, I gave up on this. This is Mm. a hill. There's a chance to do something that's this national model. We have some of the most blaring disparities between blacks and whites in the nation. And we're going to create space for innovation and black led solutions and artistic expression and um, strengthening our families and, and creating places for, for black leadership development and, and reconnecting with our heritage in West Africa. Yeah. Um, but wait, I've been waiting for this my whole life. So so faith has helped me to not give up mm. on that dream or that mm. message that's been in my heart. Had no idea what it looked like. Um, and to be honest, the people working more close, most closely with me in the center probably don't know that part about my life. But mm-hmm. that's what helps me to get up. Because we, re- we dusted off the vision for the center during the pandemic. Mm. One of my advisors... Um, he's also part of this season. Rick Phelps, our former mm. county executive, said, you know, I think it's time that we dust off that plan. Wow. And I was thinking, what the hell is Rick talking about? <laughs> you know, is he drinking? This is the pandemic. Wall yeah. Street is closed. Like we're yeah. watching people yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're, like they're making plans to put people on beds and, yeah. you know, in Central Park. Right. I don't know if it's Central Park, but like we're watching. Yeah. These yeah. numbers are going up every yeah. day by people yeah. that are Absolutely. dying. And we're going to start raising money for a mm. center. You know, this is serious. White people are dying. Yeah. So, you know, the world is paying attention. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you, know, you know, they weren't dying as fast, <laughs> but they were dying. So, yeah. like, this is big. Yeah. Um, and so I had my sense. I had this sense that I was supposed to do something that would capture the community's attention. Mm. I never know. thought that. I thought Nehemiah was it. I thought the church was it. But I knew something was supposed to happen. So part of it is I had this deep um sense that's going to be a part of something that's really major and significant. But I think as a leader, I, tr- and I'm, I, I feel part of my, my role as a, le- as a visionary is not that I just see ideas yeah. and write them down, but I'm a catalytic leader, which means I can get the right type of catalytic and eclectic people together mm. who should not mm. be in the same room, mm. but they're only in the same room because they're drawn by the vision. Yeah. Um, and so there are some people who are developers, mm. others who are construction companies, others mm. who are fundraisers, others who are f- former politicians, others who expedite vision, others who are cultural integrity consultants. But they were all motivated by the mm. vision of the center. So they were sitting there for the reason of the center, but with a different lens on. Mm. 
I shared the vision about how this is going to impact mm. society. But it was someone in that team who said, this could be a national model. Like, this is yeah. wonderful. So then that crept into my language. And then mm. others start saying, you know, um, this could be a place where innovation would take place. Mm. So people started speaking into it. So they weren't just running with my vision. Yeah. I just sort of framed out a vision. Yeah. But And I had to accept whatever it was, what they were saying. Like, sure. people said, well, we could have a clinic here. Like, no, it's not going to be a clinic. We don't yeah. need to be a clinic. Yeah. We almost had a gym in it, but we said, yeah. no, it's not a community center. Mm -hmm. It's got to be the center for culture, and cultural centers don't yeah. have gyms. Yeah. So I could throw out stuff and accept stuff, but we built it, and people started speaking into it together. So what happens is if I infuse people with vision yeah. while I'm believing it, when I'm not believing it, they speak it back to me. That's so amazing. there are plenty of Ooh. days where I just think, That's great. Ah, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then someone will just say something out, out of the blue. Or they will um, put put me in touch with someone yeah. who will say, well, yeah, we'll give a quarter million dollars. Or I'll sit down with someone who seems very unassuming and they'll say, well, my wife and I have been thinking about this, praying about it. So we want to donate a half million dollars. And then I just this is all on Zoom. Yeah. yeah. Like, like of the 20, almost 24 million dollars <laughs> that we've raised, I think that maybe only five of those meetings were in mm. person. The rest wow. of them are like through my Mac. Wow. Like sitting there with wow. a tie on yeah. and sweatpants. Yeah. Selling this yeah. vision. Um, you know, we have about 13 more million to raise on our mm -hmm. goal to get to 36. And some days I just, I feel discouraged about that. But mm. then I think, wait, but I've raised $23.5 million right. in like 10 months. Um, which is unheard of. During is, the pandemic. During, during the pandemic. During the pandemic. Yeah. But then someone out of the blue will say, you're going to get that money and more That's right. because you need money for programming. Right. This is so important. So yeah. I think in a nutshell, Peter, inspiring people with vision yeah. so that it becomes a part of their own speak. Yeah. And so without my having to say, I'm feeling down today, yeah. someone will just talk about the freshness yeah. of it, the uniqueness of it, the, 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 the far reaching um, impact of it. Mm. And as they're just talking about it and they may not even reflect the community that's running it, but in just speaking back yeah. out of their own inspiration, it feeds my mind and my intellect. My, I mean, my mind is my intellect, yeah. but my mind and my heart. That's amazing. And it gives me strength to do it. So the people who you have inspired along the way will be the very people who will inspire you when you're having those very dark days full of doubts. Man, that's so profound because sometimes as leaders, we want to do everything independently. Like we just want to do it ourselves. We just got to do it. We got to do it. But what I'm hearing you saying is this, that you kind of developed a, a team, a dream team, if you will, and you sh it poured out your vision into them. And then it became, then they became owners of that vision right. with you. And it's this thing that when you have doubt, when you're in community with that vision, it really helps you. And it's just beautiful. And I think that's really a great lesson on leadership that when you have doubts, when you have a vision, it's important to have the right people around where you share that with, where they can kind of be owners and curators of that vision so that when you're struggling with doubt, that you're doing this together as a community and something just beautiful happens and they speak into you, they help you and you do it as a community. And that's beautiful because honestly, I don't know anyone I, I'm, I said this to you before. I don't know anyone on this planet that was able to raise $24 million in 10 months. I just don't know anyone wow. on this planet that was able to do that. And uh, it, it just shows, again, kind of like your leadership and what you were able to do. But also the reality is you did have doubts. And that just oh makes gosh, you human. Yes. And But you were able to have the right people around you. And I think that makes a real powerful, powerful statement. And, you know, Peter, I'll say for the folks, for, you know, for, for, our, for our listeners, there were no seven-figure gifts in that. Yeah. So people yeah. have raised money, but yeah. they might—they probably have had 
a $5 million gift from an individual, a $15 yeah. million dollar gift. Yeah. From we didn't have any of those. Um, our largest individual gift was a half million dollars. That's amazing. Um, so to get to 23 in 10 months for, for any kind of effort is really key, but on more Zoom. specifically on <laughs> Zoom. But you know, another, another part of this, I was, I was just thinking about this is clarity of vision helps yeah. so much with leadership. So when we first started talking about this, there was a lot of pushback from the non-black mm. community about, well, shouldn't it just be like a, a cultural center, not black cultural? Some people were, were sort of standoffish. Yeah, yeah. They said, you know, like, well, what about the Hmong community? And I said, mm. well, well, what are you saying? What about the Hmong community? Like, you're white and I'm black. You're as close to being Hmong as I am. Yeah, yeah. Like, what makes me, <laughs> what makes me Hmong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, nothing wrong with being Hmong, but that's I'm just right. saying I'm that's black, right. I'm not Hmong. That's right. You that's know, right. you know, Germany, is you know just as far from you know from Laos and yeah. South you know yeah. Southeast Asia as you know Guinea Bissau yeah. where my people are from you closer you know yeah. so so anyway it's just kind of funny <laughs> how they just think you know hey y'all all just kind of glump yeah. together people of color um, yeah. some of those people fell away mm-hmm. so what you have to understand in vision mm. is that you can't just be about popularity yeah but there are others who came who said wait you actually have the balls to say black unapologetically That's black right. not even African American right. like. Black, as Lalita would say, blickety black. Like, I'm talking about <laughs> black architects. We're working right. with black construction companies. Yeah. Or, you know, black input, black doctors, yeah. black nurses, black librarians, black, you know, um, single moms, yeah. formerly incarcerated. That hasn't been done mm. on such mm. a broad scale. So what happened it is it did push some people away yeah. who wanted to shape this into something that made them yeah. feel comfortable. But the reports show the disparity with black people, not people of color, black people. Mm. So if we can be named in the problems, yeah. why the hell can't we be named in the solutions? Right. And why can't we shape it? That's right. And you're not gonna guilt trip us because when you say multi-ethnic to black yeah. people, they think, oh, see, see, that ain't us. People think that everybody of color mm. says, oh, that's us, we're all in this great big melting pot. You know, screw yeah. that. Yeah. No, when we hear that black people are like, they scared to say black, mm-hmm. so they're gonna put everybody in it. Yeah. And what it means is we got eased out and somebody's afraid that we're getting too big of a slice of pie so then it goes to multi-ethnic, people of color, POC, all this kind of stuff. Not that we can't be down with supporting sure. other folks, sure, but we're not going to be down with other folks in fixing black problems. Mm-hmm. So right. the vision of being really focused on black has also drawn people to it. So I want to say to people who are listening, don't do bait and switch. That's right. Speak very yeah. honestly about what the vision is. And because folks knew what we were doing, mm-hmm. um, what I think is amazing is when my... Um, non-black team members who know that this is not designed mm. for black white innovation across you know this mm-hmm. is for black innovation now there are going to be plays and shows and book festivals and film festivals that's open to the whole community yeah. to learn about our culture and benefit from it but at its core it's about really um curating black excellence yeah. um black led solutions where it's really designed to help the black people, I think how did how did Chancellor Manukin say this? Uh, UW Madison Chancellor, and she said she didn't she doesn't own this, but she uses it that we need space to be brave mm. and that we need space to be safe. Mm. But you can't be brave and in crossing into new territories yeah. if you have not yet found places yeah. to be safe. Yeah, this is created to be safe space mm. for black people so that we can be brave and and branch out into the broader community. Yeah, but to have white people helping to raise money among their white friends for a black-led effort that creates black space I just love it. is even more unique than just raising the money Absolutely. if it were all in a black context yes. or all in a multicultural yes. context. Yes. 
the fact that they understand we're helping to build something because this is important to our black friends, yes. which means it is important yes. to our entire community. That yes. level of vision that people are understanding that, listen, that blows me away. That's what I'm talking about. That it's not guilt money. It's That's not right. knee jerk. We didn't start during, we started yeah. fundraising during the pandemic, yeah. but yeah. the concept predated yeah. it. So for me, the fact that our community in Wisconsin, Dane County and broad Wisconsin is understanding this, the mm. fact that the president of the Milwaukee Bucks is on our team. Come on. That the that the Packers gave us yeah. um, the Packers Foundation gave us a quarter million dollar challenge grant that we leveraged to over, you know, a half million dollars, wow. nearly six hundred thousand yeah. dollars. That people around the state are understanding how important it is yeah. to make sure that Black people feel yeah. safe, seen, and at home yeah. in Wisconsin. So for me, when I look at who supports and why they support, and that comes from a vision from a man who happens to be black, who have had these experiences, yeah. it's probably one of the proudest things in my career because I've been I've been very explicit, very unapologetic, mm. and very honest in what I wanted to do. And it's bringing like a sense of like healing and redemption and some level of racial justice, like just thinking and hearing this because usually when white people raise a whole lot of money to do this kind of work, they want to kind of run the whole show. Right. You know what I'm saying? So you're doing something so different. It's like this new wine. This is a whole different thing where you're saying, no, 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 no. We want you to help us raise money, but the black people are going to run the show. And that's powerful. That's right. powerful. And I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's redeeming in so many ways. It really is. And part of the redemption of it is, is that we get to say, most of the solutions for black people are designed by white people. Yes. Human services. That's right. Um, yep. Busing programs. Yep. Yep. These things yep. that are designed, yep. that's not necessarily what, what, what black people yep. want or how they would do things. That's right. And so for us to accept the, the to, to, to be audacious enough to say, mm. this is what we need, what we need now. And by the way, I'm supportive of the other black and brown led mm -hmm. initiatives before y'all yeah. ask me, are we in competition? Yeah. Are we in competition? We're trying to help y'all right. really become right. a livable city for everyone. That's right. Hell no, we're not competitive against That's each right. other. We're cheering each yep. other on. We're texting yep. each other yep. saying, yep. I heard you just got yep. some some yep. you know, some Mackenzie Scott money. I heard you just got some yep. money from the Packers. We're we're congratulating That's right. each other because we understand what this means That's to the right. community. So I'm just really proud of leadership that inspires yep. future leadership That's right. and collaborates with existing leadership. And I have to just say this, and you have the data to prove what those solutions need to be. You know, oh, like you do your gosh, research. Yes. It's not just, here's what we think. It's like, no, we actually have data to prove this is what we need to do. Definitely. And that's that's a beautiful thing. Okay, so when you look at the 35 years of your leadership over the years, and this is a very broad question, so I don't know if you can really answer it, but if you can get a redo, Ooh. one redo of like, you know what, that, because every leader has fallen, we failed, and if you've, you haven't failed in leadership, you haven't really tried hard enough. You're not really trying hard, you're not really leading well if you haven't failed. So if there was ever a moment where you could do a redo on something, it could be your pastoral leadership, it could be you running Nehemiah, whatever it might be, what would it be? What would it be? Oh my goodness, Peter. Uh, I mean, I might just start spitting out a couple of them. Some of them I have course corrected. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and so that's that's helped. Mm -hmm. For example, you've helped to introduce me to people um, who are Korean American in the business world, or people who are really networked in media, yeah. who are in the Asian American community, specifically Korean American community, who have helped to advise me or support our work. Um, that has helped me because when the perception is you're not vying for the same money that everybody else mm -hmm. is, in a community, but you come 
with outside money and resources that gives you a bit of autonomy so you can say bold things, which I talked about in my interview with Harry. Yeah. That helped us a lot. I would have started that earlier. Mm. I wouldn't have been so tied up with strings attached dollars mm-hmm. that tried to mm. pimp my creativity mm. and my blackness. Ooh. I think that's, so. but I tried to course correct. I think what I would have done, the redo, is that I would have owned the fact that I'm a social entrepreneur mm. uh, and that I have some real emotional, some high qualities of emotional intelligence yeah. and sensitivity. I would have probably framed my work in the church, Nehemiah, um, with a five to seven year strategy of setting it up mm-hmm. and then stepping away from the leadership, the key leadership role yeah. to either create a network of Nehemiah like organizations yeah. or a network of associates. Like I'm in our, in our organization, I'm considered, I were considered a black led multi-ethnic mm-hmm. church. Found life yeah. is probably like yeah. 60% black. Yeah. When, you know, when you met me, it probably was 85%. Sure. Black. I think that what I would have done is stepped in and said, you all, I'm a visionary leader. Here's what I'm going to do for seven years, but then I'm going to step back and create curriculum. I'm going to train leaders and we're going to create, you know, a fountain of life in West Africa and South Africa, or we're going to create a covering or, yeah. or an association yeah. for independent pastors who are like-minded. I think I would have moved in that role. That's mm. part of what I see myself doing. Mm. Um, in my mid sixties, I turned 60 this year, my mm. mid to late sixties, I want to create, um, institutes, associations, learning circles, like the one that was created where you and I met, I would have done that earlier in my career. Yeah. Now there's a part of me that says, but you need 35 years of experience to have the credibility of doing that. But I wanted so much to be a good administrator yeah. that I was ashamed of my visionariness, hmm. that I think I downplayed it. Hmm. Like you asked, you said something a little bit earlier, Peter, about how I saw Harry's potential. Yeah. The flat side of that is I don't see details. Mm-hmm. So just because I saw that in Harry doesn't mean that he was ready for it sure. that day. Sure. But I took the steps sure. in getting him ready for that mm-hmm. that day because someone else in the office, my wife wanted to hire him to, because he just said, I just need to do something. He was yeah. going to be the receptionist. I was like, oh, hell no. Pa- you know, he got more in him. This yeah. guy used to yeah, manage yeah. Jared's. Yeah. He could do more than answer phones. Yeah. Um, and so I, I sort of started creating that process. Mm. So when you have a person in the leadership who doesn't see details, I don't think about grants, reports, <laughs> you know, um, not. updates. Mm-hmm. So there are places where I think I've caused the organizations to hiccup because I have not created an, uh, an environment where I see those details, yeah. but a visionary doesn't. That's right. I would have put myself in a position. So I'm like him, not her, yeah. them. Yes, yes, yes. And I would have appreciated that. Mm. I spent a couple of years of my life, trying to fix the whole racial problem after I wrote Justified Anger because the white philanthropic organization said, well, what do you suggest? Which is a legitimate question. Mm. However, they have never pinned clean lakes on one white man or one white woman. Mm. They have never pegged um, any of the issues that we have in our community, whether it's too much salt in snow removal. They have not pinned that. Not even the mayor, not even the governor gets pinned with just one thing. So like, so just because I penned a letter that went viral, I am now the Negro that's got to fix mm. every damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to leave black people like Malcolm X. Yeah. I've got to appease white people. Mm. And then I got to think like I'm Hmong. Yeah. I'm being facetious, facetious, <laughs> yeah. facetious yeah, when I'm yeah, saying that. Yeah. And then I got to make sure that other groups don't feel like they're not a part of that mm. discussion. Then I got to be able to communicate that to tenured faculty members mm. and, you know, folks who don't have those kinds of things. That's a lot of yeah. pressure to get up every day. Looking back, I realized that for about three years, I was having panic attacks. Mm. 
that every day I woke up to this sense of, and I'm not exaggerating, yeah. it wasn't until TDS, TDS Telecom, seconded um, Patrick Yates to work with us for 16 months wow. to help put some legs to the whole structure of Justified yeah. Anger. It wasn't until he was on loan to us mm. for 60% of his time for a year and a half, a little bit more than a year and a half, that I stopped having those panic attacks, that everything was on me. My redo is that I would not let white people, black people, anybody um, put the burden of fixing things on me yeah. with no resources, because I didn't start it, it wasn't mm. mine to fix, but I own that because people said, you should do it. I would have led from my strength of being a visionary. Wow. I would have communicated more, because yeah. what happened was I penned a fairly excellent Letter it wasn't an interview. I got to put it in my own yeah. words. Yeah. Very little editing. So those were like like probably eighty five percent of that were my actual yeah. words and justified yeah. anger. I would have sat in a position where I continued to offer those commentaries mm. to the community, to society, to make people stop and look and reconsider the direction that we're moving. I think it might have taken the thirty five years to understand it because we yeah. did pivot. We did start creating things so that I could comment white papers and gatherings and statements that I could make. Um, it created an opportunity for me to go directly to the press and yeah. say, this is what I want to say, yeah. what I want to do. Um, um, and they could choose to pick it up or not. But when they didn't, I created my own podcast. Yep. And, um, or start working with independent black-led newspapers. Um, but it's because I recognized my voice. Right. So my redo, as I sum that up, is I would have embraced the fact that I'm a communicator, that I'm a change mm -hmm. agent, that I would have probably prepared not when I say an exit plan, I don't mean that I would have been gone, but I think I would have designed a role mm. that was more obvious as to what I was doing inside that organization. And the other thing is I would have not have wasted 30 years apologizing mm. for the mm. fact that I'm the founder of Nehemiah, I'm the yeah. founder of Fountain of Life, I'm the founder of Black Like Me Podcast, I'm the founder of the Center for Black Excess and Culture. That's right. So let people who don't understand how I work um, define, mm. um, well, how do you do all of, how do you do all of that? Um, none of which is a problem when you're doing it all for free. Nobody yeah. gives a damn what you do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but as they start growing in popularity, everybody yeah. wants to begin to scrutinize mm -hmm. you. Um, I think that I would have, I can't help living in a fishbowl when you're a leader who happens to be black. Mm -hmm. But I think while people were looking at me inside the fishbowl, I wouldn't have looked back at them. Wow. I would have been looking at them little food pellets that they give fish or swimming in them little That's right. them little houses that you put down in fish bowls. I would have enjoyed the fish bowl mm -hmm. rather than wondering, why the hell are you looking at me? Why mm -hmm. you what what you looking at? Yeah. I would have just been swimming, backstroking and enjoying it. So I think those are the things that yeah. I would do um in my major redo mm. cuz I feel like I had lots of slippage. Yeah. I lost a lot of energy worrying about things that were not my issues to yeah. worry about, but I allow people to convince me to make it my yeah, issue. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. You know, I still remember we were at California Pizza Kitchen. And <laughs> One you, of my favorite yeah. spots. <laughs> yeah, get get them a gift card to CPK. That's They'll right. Love that's it. Yeah, that's CPK, right. somebody who lives in California, send this episode to come CPK. Come pasta, baby. This come episode is, pasta. This, this, come on here. This episode <laughs> is brought to you by CPK. <laughs> that's right. California Pizza Kitchen. They better be one of the sponsors. But uh, <laughs> I still remember you putting the finishing touches on the Justified Anger article. We oh my gosh and, yes and, and i was reading some of it and i was just like wow but i just had no idea that when you <laughs> sent it it would blow up the way it blew up and it just i was with you when i sent it in fact i yeah i was in december i was with you just give me 15 20 minutes i just gotta like relook at this i just gotta put my finishing touch yes I gotta send it to the editor and who would have thought like that letter just became this viral thing that just opened up and 10 years ago yeah to 10 do years what ago you're doing now it's really an amazing thing 
and uh, all the great different lessons you're learning, even the redos, but all those are just amazing stories. Um, yeah. Thank you for that, Peter. Really, really amazing stories. All right, this is my last question I have for you. Okay. And, uh, and this is a very important question because you and I have talked about this quite a bit. Uh, we know that there are uh, tensions between the black and Asian community. It's been there for a long time in this country. And we've also dreamed about what it would look like when, when the black and Asian community can come together and kind of join forces and potentially just battle racial injustice in this country. And I think it would be just beautiful. And so because of the years of your cross-cultural experience, you know, and all the uh, connections, like you have your relationship with me and other Asian folks as well, I think we've talked about this, but like, what do you think are some steps that we can take where the black and the Asian community come, can come together kind of work on bringing some healing between our group, between our ethnic groups, and find ways in how we can build bridges to work together to, you know, destroy this nasty monster called racism in this country. Right. What's such an important um, question, Peter. You know, you and I have talked about this um, extensively, you know, in our our own relationships. Um, You know, Peter would never say this, but like back home, he pulls together a coalition of mainly Korean-American and African-American yeah. pastors to talk about this very thing. So this isn't just some eth- ethereal concept. It's actually where you put your time in. Yeah. You know, you support work in South Africa where um, where, where, you're, where black women, African, South African women uh, from KwaZulu-Natal yeah. are supporting each other and creating lending institutions or lending yeah. programs and things. So you're living this out about how we work and empower. So I just want to c- contextualize this mm. um, that way. I think a couple of things, Peter. Another thing we talked about is that during the height of the civil rights, there were many Asian American influencers mm. who stood with us. Mm. You know, there's this one picture I think I sent you where we mm-hmm. found where it's a where it's a gentleman, Asian American, I think it was Japanese American, had like this raised fist and he said, Yellow peril stands with black power. Mm. And I looked at that picture. I love that picture, saved on my computer because I asked myself, what happened? Yeah. We used to really work closely with yeah. the Jewish community and other communities, but let's just stick with with, with, with Korean I mean, with, with Asian American. I think a number of things need to happen. One, and I remember sharing this at a conference I spoke at. Um, it was a li- religious conference down in, um, in Kansas. I'm talking about race relations. When I shared the history of how black people marched, black grandmothers had urine thrown on them mm. and dog feces and were whipped and water hosed because black people marched in order to make sure that women had rights, mm. Asian Americans had rights, um, Latino individuals had rights, um, folks who were foreign to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted them to have a good experience. Yeah. One of my friends who's, um, who's Taiwanese-American said, you know, because of civil rights, U.S. enacted new laws yeah. that allowed my family, his family, right. to to keep money that they earned, bring family over, because the U.S. was actually limiting the number of people who could come from Asia because they yep. wanted to keep a, a very small Asian yeah. population. And, uh, they wanted a lot of them to run yeah. Asian restaurants. I think, and so I mentioned this in 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 um in this in this message. Two Asian American men came up to me after, and in my message I said, and in general. The Asian American community has never said thank you to black people mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. paving that way. That's Instead, right. they allowed the white leaders and influencers mm-hmm. to call them the model minorities mm-hmm. and to help mm-hmm. them to, to, to come up with the idea, to conjure up the idea that if you just worked hard like us, mm-hmm. 
you wouldn't be in this situation. Mm. So creating a little bit of disdain between yes, the groups. Right. You're the model ones. They're the messy ones. You know, they live in housing tenements. They stink. Their mother, the, the mothers are raised in the community by themselves. And I just feel like like this reality was wedged. Mm. It was the first time in my life that I can remember these two Asian American men came and said, I didn't know that. Mm. I'm sorry. And thank you for what black people did for yeah. Asian American people. Yeah. It made me want to cry because I wasn't saying it so yeah. people would come up and say that to me. Yeah. That's a long way of saying, I think black people and Asian American people have got to look at history. Mm. You know, when you and I talk about the Korean Japanese struggle and how that impacts you, I think we went to see 12 Year Slave together. Yeah. It's one of those movies. Yeah. And I just walked out feeling sick. And I said, yeah. Peter, what do you think when you see that? And you said, I think about the Japanese mm. and the impact on my Korean family. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't expecting that answer, mm-hmm. but it showed me that you do understand op- oppression and, and ethnic clashes. And I think we have stories that we can yeah. share. Yeah. You know, soul food and kimchi were born out of some of the same yeah. types of how do you hide food yeah. when you're under siege? How do you eat the worst yeah. parts of the meats? There's so much that we have in common, mm. but our stories have not merged. Yes. We don't yes. tell how we maintain culture and faith and valued education in that mm. process. I don't think most Asian Americans who have developed a disdain mm. for black people and black culture understand what we've done. And it goes way beyond K-pop. It goes yeah. way beyond yeah. yep. the sexy parts of our culture that yeah. the whole world enjoys, yeah. but have never fully appreciated yeah. the black people who created that. And our people died. Yeah. We did more than pop lock. We did more yeah. than just shook our black asses. Yeah. Yeah. We died yeah. so that um, to get birth to the women's movement who benefited more from civil rights than mm. black people did. Mm. And mm-hmm. so I think what we got to do is just get some of the leaders to sit down and say, what's the history that we've ignored? What's yeah. our common stories? And how do we connect with each other? How do we support each other? How do we genuinely value each other? And I think people have got to watch leaders do this, speak out on things together, but do life together, build relationships That's with right. each other so that that begins to trickle down. Mm-hmm. Our, our congregation has a different perspective of Asian-American culture and individuals because of my friendship with you mm. and John Teeter and mm-hmm. and and um, Bill and, yeah. and Dave and these yeah. other these other friends. And, I, you know, you have black people on your staff. Yeah. But I, I would think that that they think differently. Some of your folks think differently because we've had meals together. Yeah. They've gotten to know me and my families. And so me and my family. I don't have one family. Me and my <laughs> family and, and black families. I think it starts at a very personal level. But I think the other part of it is most aren't familiar with the history. Yeah. And so what black people were feeling, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, when stuff was happening, horrible atrocities were happening to Asian-American communities. It wasn't that we didn't feel it. The first response was, okay, they thought this was gone. Mm -hmm. And if they, if we had befriended Mm -hmm. each other, we would have said, that shit ain't gone. Mm-hmm. They still think it. We hear what they say when you're not around. We mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I felt like this, because people really couldn't believe that it yeah. was going on. Yeah. But because we had not built bridges to mm-hmm. each other, I cared about it. My family yeah. did because we know you and we know others. Yeah. But for folks whose perspective yeah. of Asian Americans is that they don't give a damn about the yeah. black community, black people weren't sitting in front of the TV thinking, mm-hmm. oh my God, what just happened? I'm just being, I'm yeah. just keeping it, yeah, I'm just keep keeping it 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. People weren't, they were like, we try to tell people that this was the reality, but but people call us, we're whiners and we're this and we're that. You mean you can be Asian and a doctor and it don't matter to people just as long as you're Asian. You can be Asian and rich and they don't care. Black people have been saying, 
It doesn't matter where it we go matter. to school, what we do. That's right. So I think part of yeah. what we have to do in, in building a strong coalition with each other, let's look back at history. Let's teach that history. Yeah. Let's show that level of appreciation. Because yeah. you tell black people thanks one time that they know people get it, mm. it changes the whole relationship. Mm. Like, okay, folks appreciate. It's like yeah. coming to my home and, and you know, trying some food that's that's you know that's that's black cuisine like wow this is good can i get some more like once people once people show this this sensitivity towards your culture you feel like it's family like when you came to my house and ate some collard greens mm-hmm. it wasn't your first time you ate it but yeah. first time you ate it in my home yeah um um or when i come to you i want to i want to go and, and experience you know korean cuisine yeah. i want to try some new stuff is is that way when people know your history yeah and say you know what Black people have opened the door That's right. and have contributed to Asian success. And so we need to think differently when we mm. hear things that would change things for black people because mm-hmm. we're used to taking care of folks yeah. who shit on us. It's what mm-hmm. we do. We raise the babies of people who beat us, raped mm-hmm. us and sold us mm-hmm. because if we allowed hate to enter our hearts, yeah. it would have killed us more than slavery. Wow. So we're used to turning around and, and doing that at the risk of our own self esteem. Yeah. It wouldn't take much for black people yeah. to say, oh, hell no, mm. when we see some atrocities happening. Yeah. Now, people are going to listen to this and think, well, you're black. You understand oppression. You should just do it. You ask, how do we move ahead? I'm not at you. Not yeah. ask me what makes yeah. white people understand yeah. us better. We have a history that should have run parallel with each other. But there are other people meddling to keep us from collaborating. And this is how we do it by understanding history, realizing that we're better and stronger and smarter together. Mm. And let's build from that strength let's share resources and let's shake this stuff up yeah yeah and what i'm hearing from you and i couldn't agree with you more and i think there's a part of this and if anyone's listening and they're part i can only speak for my my group the asian community is that we have to realize that uh that there is a necessary thing that we have to do and realize that black people have paved the way for us to be in this country and be successful and that's that part of that, that gratefulness Thankfulness, and it's a, something that we have to do. I think it's something that we have to do, and I think um, amongst the Asian American community, it's something that they don't fully believe in yet. And that's why I think when those mm-hmm. two brothers came up to you afterwards, it's like the first time they ever heard this. They said, "I've never heard this before." But it's like, but just study the history. Like right. without civil rights, you wouldn't even be allowed to be here. Right. Nothing would have been like. There's been nothing, and I think part of that is that we have to take ownership of the fact that when we came into this country that you know our parents and we were just belie- we, we were led to believe as long as we study and work really hard our goal is to be white and that's it mm-hmm. and we didn't even think about that we wouldn't even be able to be here if it wasn't for the black people and I think that there has to be a shift amongst my, my folks my Asian American community of just really understanding and thanking the black community I think like you said that would really be a real good first step in making this happen and also getting opportunities to really ask honest questions and just being able to uh, have a safe community where we can do that I think would be so helpful but yeah it's just it's just so important coming together and and uh, and the stories that we can share together we I need think. To. and learning the history uh, would be really great because when our staff when about what is it about 12 of us took the black history course right like, right I mean I just remember after a couple sessions like our staff were just crying they didn't really know. they didn't they just know didn't know and is this deep understanding and just uh, learning the history of what black people had to go through in this country and uh and, and the and the opportunities that they were able to pave 
for the Asian American community. And it's just opened up in such a huge way. And I'm just so grateful for it. And I just really, I hope, my hope is that that would, that, that would be um, something that, that can happen. And hopefully, you know, you can help us be a catalyst to that and, yes. and bringing the Asian and black community together in some Let's ways do it. and figuring out how we can come together and work together and serve together to kind of defeat this ugly monster called racism. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, Peter, when you get a group that's been in America as long as black people have been, yeah. you know, my family's been here for like 400 years. Mm. You came to America when you were about six, nine months old. Yep. Um, so your parents came 70s. here in the yeah, 70s. Your yeah. parents came here not speaking any English yeah, yeah. Uh, because you were sick. They were looking for medical yeah. care. Um, and so you had nothing to do with racism and systemic racism. Yeah. But when people watch the Korean American community excel and create small businesses and move ahead, that it was happening during a time where black people could walk into banks and not be given yeah. resources. Like redlining yeah. was still going on. Yeah. And you all were told we were dirty. You all mm-hmm. were told, not every Asian person, but they were, they're were they being told you're smart, you're doing this. Mm-hmm. So to have been working the land yeah. and then just watch two people come in yeah. and just pass you by and not understand what grieves the skids, you all didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so um, that's why people watched the video and had no idea. But that was where the white community intervened, yeah. even calling you all yellow. Like yeah. people in Asia don't walk around yeah. saying that. Yeah. It was to show exactly. that white is the ideal. Yep. Um, um, black is just hopeless yeah. and it's dark and it's yeah. dirty. But you know what? You're yellow, which is almost white. It is nowhere near. No one confuses yellow yeah. with black. Yeah. Yeah. But if you don't have good color differentiation, Yellow can sometimes, pale yellow can sometimes look like white. So even referring to you all as yellow, but others as brown and red and black, even on the color scheme, that's closer to white. So we have to even just think about like who created yellow and why. And it's because when Asians stopped wanting to collaborate with, with European influence and white influence, of of um, you know how they moved and acted in their country, or the work mm. that America did in setting up the North South North yeah. and South Korea, like those kinds of interventions, yeah. it set up some resistance among Asian mm. Americans. And so, the more y'all spoke out, the more you got pushed back from mm. America too. But we spoke, mm. Mm. and and we spoke English, yeah. So we could speak out in a way that most that many people could understand. And so we were very vocal with that. And we stood up by being yeah. by being black, and so we could constantly um, be so mistreated that if I were Asian American coming to America and I saw how black people were being treated, I would not want to be in that category either. Yeah. So then yeah. it just gave all the motivation That's right. to not be. But as we yeah. understand that and just work together, I think Peter, you and I, and others can help to be a catalyst. But we can't just talk when the crap hits the fan. That's right. We got to build relationships. Mm-hmm. We got to train others and teach people to be family yeah. and support each other. Yeah, like you said, that whole yellow thing and how it's so close to being white. I mean, in Korea, you, you'll just, if you go there, like everyone wants to have the palest skin. They don't want to get tans. They put umbrellas. They have they wear these big obnoxious hats so that the sun doesn't invade their, their, their skin because they want to be as white as possible because white is the, is the goal that right, we want to get right. to. When our kids are born, we're looking and hoping, and you guys think this is crazy, but do they have the Western eyes? Do they have that big flap under their eyes? Every Korean parent is hoping that their kid has that. And if they don't, we'll get surgery to make sure that they have it. 
because wow. we don't want them to have the Asian features. So there's already this sense of shame. And this mm. ideal is we need to look more white and Western. And we don't even realize we're doing it. That's, that's the thing that sometimes makes me really sad. Koreans don't even know that they're doing it. And their, their goal is to be more white. Wow. And, uh, and so we come in this country and it's just natural. Like you say, we see what's happening and we naturally say we're going to continue to do our best to be as white as we can. Study hard, work hard, get the education. And like you said, it's like it don't matter. In this country, it doesn't matter because, you know, people are still going to judge you by the color of your skin right. and the way you look. Right. So anyway, yeah. So thank you for that. That was really, really no, special. No. Yeah. Listen, you all, I told you that you were in store for this great episode. Um Listen, you know people that need to listen to this. And this that's not code for Black Like Me podcast listeners. Go find all your Asian-American friends and send this to them. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, but just share this broadly. You know, in this season, I want you to do more than just listen and click a link and become a patron, although I want you to do that. I want you to really share this information so that people can begin to think and act differently. You know, we want to motivate people and not just entertain people, but we want people to think like global citizens. And I believe that this episode has really, really helped. And so I enjoyed this space. My special guest has been Peter on soon to be Dr. Peter on Dr. Chung-Koon. Yeah, that's what you Peter told me on. to change my name back to Chung-Koon. Yes, I'm telling you, when that's <laughs> when that certificate come out, <laughs> if you think I went off because you didn't like that orange shirt. Let me come to a graduation yeah. party and it says Peter on. I'm going to be like, oh, I'm going to start tearing crap up. You watch and see. I'm going to have a black fit. I'm going to have a Negro fit right up in your house. You That, that certificate oh, better man. say your Korean name. Oh. I want it to say what your mama and daddy called That's you. That's right. And so uh, I want you all just to share this information because it does give us hope that we can work together. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping that yeah. my uh, Black Like Me podcast listeners become those sparks and those that, that ray or beams of light of encouragement in the world, but it comes from not just thinking you're, you've arrived, but making sure that you're traveling so that you can arrive someplace that's very meaningful. So please lean in, learn, listen, be transformed, share this information, write a review about the podcast. If you haven't done that, do it. Don't just listen and then not help me get the word out. Share a link on your social media. And if you have not also, if you have not yet done it, click the link to become a patron. If you're already a patron, click that link again because you can upgrade. Because right. we want to get this message out to as many people as possible. Because this space that we're creating is not as popular and widespread as one might think. Not on the podcast airwaves. So, appreciate you all being a part of the change that we want to be. And I certainly appreciate you for being a part of Black Like Me. And to my patrons... Um, and supporters of Patreon. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for believing in this and helping us to create this um, exquisite product um, that can really help people think, learn, and live differently together. Have a great day. <laughs>